This time on Sonic Earth Expeditions. The meaning of quiet. And the need for more quiet places. Hello fellow listeners and welcome. I'm your host, Mary Beth Toole. Gordon Hempton is the co-founder of Quiet Parks International, a nonprofit organization committed to the preservation of quiet places. He's recorded natural soundscapes around the world. His work has been used in film and documentaries, and he wrote the book on quiet. Literally, it's called One Square Inch of Silence. Matt Mickelson is a sound recordist and documentary filmmaker and the executive director of Wilderness Quiet Parks at Quiet Parks International. Gordon is a pioneer in this work, and Matt is the next generation. They have generously shared their beautiful sound recordings with us for this podcast and their stories about sounds and listening. Enjoy. The first time Gordon truly listened was when he was a graduate student. He was driving down the highway late one night, pondering his future as a plant pathologist. Tired, Gordon pulled over and was trying to get some rest by the side of the road when a thunderstorm rolled in. What he experienced next was an aha moment that changed his life. That was the first time that I truly listened, which I define as letting go of outcome, not thinking, only feeling, taking in all that raw information as how it was meant to be. You know, our first language, after all, is emotion. And this is how the spiritual transformation happens. And the thunderstorm just echoed through the valley, revealing places that were beyond sight, but I could feel. And the crickets also were sensing the vibrations of the thunder and doing their own trills and their own performance. And I, I left that experience with um, a feeling that would become clearer while I was in graduate school, because after all, I had momentum, I had plans, I took a loan, now I had debt. It wasn't like, okay, that aha moment now transforms my life, I'll do something else, just work on becoming a better listener. It meant that I was going to still become a plant pathologist. However, 
um, you know, these deep experiences that we have in life kind of create a new measure of what life is about. And eventually that simply, you know, the outcome was I had to drop out of graduate school because if I hadn't been listening and I was 27 years old, then I felt like I really didn't know anything. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know the world around me. And, um, and it was just like I needed to get a microphone in my hands and do the work around because my brain had so many bad habits and simply start to listen to the world as it really was, as it really was. And that began uh, what I do today as a profession, which is simply try to become a better listener. Mm. And, and you've made so many albums recording all these sounds of nature. Would you say it was a calling? Well, yes, a calling. A calling, um, I think we all receive callings in our lives, several callings, not just one. Um, and yet we may not hear it, we may disregard it, we may um, not have the aha experience, we might just have the ah experience, and it becomes another story, okay? But still, you know, for everyone, there is real truth in listening. I think that there's a, there's a saying that seeing is believing, Okay, that's our culture today because we're not a listening culture. True. But if we really think about it, we know the difference between truth and sarcasm simply in the intonation of a person's voice. And I, I also have to say, too, that it's increasingly difficult in a noise-polluted world to even hear intuitions intonations in a person's voice, right? And so our modern world, just to cut to the chase here, our modern world has becoming increasingly dumbed down for us. And we're living kind of dumb, uninformed lives. And, and you know, this is why for Matt and myself, uh, the preservation of intelligent listening places is so important for us all. Matt, we're here with Gordon, and he's kind of a legend with this. When did you first meet him and know that you wanted to do this kind of work? Okay, let's see. It was 2012, um, so eight years ago. Almost probably to the date I heard um, some sort of podcast interview, I think, with Gordon. And I was at a really pivotal time in my life and career. It was my freshman year at Ithaca College, studying uh, to be a sound designer and audio engineer for film and television. But I was like raised outside. I was raised going backpacking and uh, on the river and getting dirty and exploring. And I kind of realized that the life of an audio engineer um, or a sound designer is a life spent inside in dark studios. And I love turning knobs. I love recording. I love being in the studio. But I realized that um, that was a life that wasn't going to be 100% satisfying for me. And I needed to find some way to add in uh, time spent outside and time spent doing environmental conservation. So, yeah, I heard about Gordon and his work. Um, and as an 18-year-old young lad, 
uh, I emailed Gordon, and I still have the email, and I said, in a few more words than this, um, hey, Gordon, uh, my name is Matt, I'm 18 years old, what you do sounds really cool, do you need any help? <laughs> or w can you talk more about it? And I think that week, we hopped on a phone call that ended up being like two hours long, and by the end of that phone call, I had planned a trip to go out to Washington State and uh, study with Gordon for a few days. I remember the day you showed up, Matt. You know, you, you pulled into the circular driveway at Camp Hayden, and um, it's like, what? Who is this guy, right? This young kid, all the bumper stickers on. And then, you, you know, you stand up, and you're like this living Sasquatch of a man towering over me by... I don't know. It's it's actually getting bigger as I shrink with age. But, you know, at least a foot, if not a foot and a half, hair everywhere, right? And also, you um, had this, because of this journey that you took across the country and everything, you had this very busy being, right? Busy being. So, to be honest with you, Matt, I had some real doubts about what you were doing there. But I knew that you were in a beautiful place at a perfect time. And so when I set you up with recording equipment for you to just have your own conversation with nature, um, I thought on that very rainy day in Joyce, which is, you know, you know Joyce, it's like we're all mossbacks out there. <laughs> it was a very rainy day. You head out and um, I expect you to be back in 15 minutes. But instead, you you were gone a couple of hours, and I actually started to worry about my equipment. You know, it's like Matt has all my equipment, and what's what's going to happen? So I I was staying attentive, and I was listening myself, and wondering if you also uh, um, were, hmm, let's say, getting hypnotized by the magic of nature, and you came out of the woods. Um, hypnotized with this, with this, with big eyes, big smile, and I knew that you had discovered something really special. Uh, and so now, fast forward all these years, I did not know then that you would become the sound recordist that you are, um, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, but I knew then that it did and would change your life forever. It did indeed change my life. And I could say I had some reservations pulling into uh, your property as well. <laughs> <laughs> what scared you, know? you the most? Well, I don't know. I think the, uh, it's weird. You know, you set up this uh, meeting with a human you've never met before. You've heard a lot. You've read a lot. Um, and you say, uh, pull down the driveway till you see the yurt. And that was like my first yurt experience. Um, and yeah, but I did discover something really magical that day that did change my life. Um, and I had no clue what it would lead to either. You're talking about sort of the, the wonderment and the wow factor of being out there recording, but it's also... You know, Matt, you're out there in harsh conditions, you know, it's raining and it's kind of like the glamour of it all. What the perfect job. Yeah, yeah. What <laughs> makes you want to stand out in these conditions to record sound? Well, I'd say the rain on the Olympic Peninsula is glorious for about the first 
20 or 30 minutes, <laughs> and then it becomes not so glorious after that. That day in particular um, were some of the best sound recordings that I've taken to this day still because I was just uh, totally following um, my soul. You know, I wasn't thinking about the technology. I wasn't thinking about um, what was going to happen to the sound afterwards or if I was going to edit it or anything. I was just totally lost in complete creative freedom. Um, and that's not something that a lot of us get to do very often. You know, I think we like live lives that are very directed and very scheduled. Um, I'm very guilty of it as well. You know, my schedule goes out months at a time. Um, but that was like the first time I realized like, oh, this is just being like, I'm just mm. here to experience whatever happens. Um, and the specific event that kept me out for so long was I was becoming acquainted with the uh, family of crow or of ravens that has lived at Camp Hayden for a number of years now. And every time I go back, I think I hear the lineage. I think they're there. They're saying hello to me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say there is like in some ways there's like this masochistic thing that happens where I do love suffering to get the sound. Um, but it's not super pleasant all the time. Um, many times it's not very pleasant. Um, but you're just there. It's like a roller coaster. You know, you're not moving at all, but you never know what's going to happen. Um, and we all know the best things happen right when you think nothing's going to happen. Like some of my best recordings happened as I was going to press the stop button to pack up my stuff and leave. You just got to stay out. <laughs> Matt, you know, I just have to say that as you were describing how the experience just really touched your soul, I mean, it even right now is evoking this, this sense of, yes, what Henniger said, true listening is worship. And, and, you know, that's the space that it happens where you find out that even though you're totally unprepared you know, technically, everything like that for your first experience, you're actually fully prepared because you're alive, right? You're alive, and you get in this situation where there's literally no coaching on how you're supposed to experience it, so you're on your own. And then when you become alive like that, it's really hard, you know, not to be alive. <laughs> it's really hard to do anything else. And then the big question is, and always has been, how can I do this more? Yeah. Well, and so many people ask me too, like, well, what was the technical part of, you know, getting trained by Gordon? And I think so much of our time together had, there were no microphones involved for decent chunks of our time together those first few days. Um, but I do remember, you know, crossing a little creek and you saying, okay, get in the creek. And it's like 40 degrees and raining. And I'm like, what do you mean get in the creek? And you're like, go stand, <laughs> kneel in the creek and put your head close to each individual ripple. Mm -hmm. And this was a tiny little runoff on a trail. Um, but there were hundreds of different sounds happening in just a two foot little creek. Um, and so, so much of our time together was spent just learning to like teach me how to appreciate and how to pick out different sounds. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Because listening is the other half of music. We think of music as being a stage performance or studio performance by musicians that have practiced and done the songwriting, but um, music doesn't happen 
until the listener, the audience, receives it. And in the case of nature, the where you are, where you are, how you position yourself is every bit as important as photography, for example. You can think, you know, you look out and you watch somebody using their iPhone to take a picture of the scenery and they're standing up, okay? Taking normal position, they take another picture, they're still standing up. Look at any photographer. What are they doing? Maybe one stand up, but the rest of it is get down low, get in close, maybe like find something you can stand on, change that because there is that that um, changing feeling that you can pursue as you change your position. So not only is listening the other half of music, but it is also a performance, Mm -hmm. right? It's also very much a performance. In each one of these recordings, they tell a story. So, for example, Gordon, your recording of Loons, uh, it's one of my favorite clips. It's, it's otherworldly in its beauty. Um, Evening Loons, I think it's called. Um, what is the story of this recording? Well, the story of this recording is that I've always wanted to record Loons before this and had never, but I've heard it. Um, you know, their beautiful tremulo call echo across the wilderness in the lakes region of northern Minnesota. And I decided in Seattle that, okay, I was going to go ahead and pursue this. And that the loons, when they return uh, from the south, they return as soon as the ice breaks up. So I, I left a beautiful, um, blossoming, flowering Seattle and arrived in Minnesota, which still had crunchy snow on the grounds and um, wolves howling in the distance and all alone and really cold. Uh, In fact, um, I remember a remarkable event that my microphone system, which is a human head, actually uh, lost a piece of its ear. Fritz's ear lost. And, and, you know, it's like I found this. Um, at night with wolves howling in the background is like, but you can't leave without, you know, the whole thing together. And then when I finally positioned the microphone at the edge of the lake, because the lake itself is a very special listening environment, it is as if an ear, uh, it collects the sounds along the surface, especially in springtime when there are thermal gradients that go on. And so at the edge of this lake, the power of my microphone was then naturally amplified to be able to listen to the entire lake. And I forgot that I was there to record the loons because the, um, the frogs and toads were just so magic. And just like the way that they were singing and singing in a chorus where they all had this collective voice, not the individual it didn't really count. It had this collective voice that really, it really kind of moved me into this sense of, thank God I'm alive, you know, under any circumstances. And then I heard something that was really strange. It was like a, and I thought, what is that? And then, 
in a second. And that was the arrival of the loons at night. And then, of course, they give their duet to each other. Um, And this, after their thousand-mile journey, were the first sounds that really... Um, I just knew, I just knew if that's what marriage is, I want a marriage like that. Um, they go on, of course, um, to later on in the season to nest where they always nest. They return to their homeland and raise the next generation of loons. And all of this is, I think, just my way of saying that when, um, when I stop paying attention to my own life and my own worries and my own concerns and problems and just give myself up to the experience of other wild animals that also have concerns and worry, but they don't worry, this is it. You know, they simply listen and are obedient to the opportunities that are available. So, so simple. Sound really does, and recording in particular, I mean, yes, it's like a meditation, but it also really does have that capacity that you just mentioned to elevate us into gratitude and and other, you know, transcendent uh, emotions and experiences. Matt, your recording of the coyotes in Yellowstone also, like the loons, like gave me the chills. What can you tell me about that recording? Well, this is a real um, flagship moment for me because Gordon has the best coyote recording of all time. And before I even met Gordon, I had heard this coyote recording. So the fact that we're here today talking about my coyote recording is like a real, oh, what an ego boost I'm getting right now. (laughs) Sorry, Um, Gordon. Oh, my gosh. Hold on. i got to write down the date and time on this one. Proud of you. (laughs) Um... So the um, talking about suffering in the cold, yeah, that was um, this February um, in the middle of the coronavirus lockdowns um, or right before, maybe it was March, um, but people were were starting to get scared, not traveling as much. um, And I had been on the hunt for um, this pack of coyotes that I had heard. I'd spent a few days in that area and every night at around eight or nine o'clock, they would start going off. And for about a week straight, I had like gotten there at 6 p.m., set up where I thought I would go, um, and they'd be way off in the distance, and I didn't get them, and that persisted for a few nights. Um, And it was also like one of the coldest fronts that we had of the year, so it was like negative 20 or so. Um, And one of the real pains in the butt about field recording is you can't move. You you have to be totally still, because at any moment, you know, that event could happen. So even though I would plant my microphone and move maybe a quarter mile away or so, um, you still, you have to be very careful not to move at any point because you don't want to disturb the wildlife. You don't want to interrupt the recording. Um, so on that particular night where I got this recording, um, I had seen fresh tracks in the snow kind of going over a frozen river bend um, of where I thought the coyotes were. And I set out my mic where I thought they might they might go. Um, and then hunkered down in my zero degree sleeping bag, just sitting on a snowbank waiting. Um, an hour passes, two hours pass, three hours pass. 
And at that point, I'm starting to get a little too cold, um, even with all my layers and blankets and hand warmers. And um, I really was standing up, like getting out of my sleeping bag to go fetch the gear because I was going to call it a night and come back the next day. And then I heard them start to go off in the distance. And I froze. <laughs> and at first, I kind of thought, okay, well, they're still pretty distant and it's not going to be the recording I want. And there was this one coyote just must have been standing within 50 yards of my microphone who just gave this really super beautiful um, and intimate call, as you heard. Um, and yeah, it was like one of the one of the most thrilling experiences I've ever had in the field because like sometimes you just know you got it, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not very often. I think a lot of the times Gordon and I talk about after we go field recording, um, we feel like, oh, I didn't really get what I wanted. Or um, it's hard not to be disappointed sometimes because you have like big expectations. Um, and then you come into the studio and you realize, oh, no, what I captured is great. Um, that was one of the few times I can remember being like, oh, my God, this is phenomenal. Like, I'm so excited that I got this. And I immediately came home. I woke up my partner. I was like, you have to listen to what I got. It's so amazing. Um, yeah, so it's one of my my pro my top prizes, I would say, I've won in my suffering uh, due to field recording. <laughs> and there was also that time when danger struck a little too close for Matt's comfort. I was on the hunt for thunderstorms. I had been... Um, thunderstorms are one of the hardest things to record. Um, you can try for years to record thunderstorms like I have and still not have that much. Um, and the type of thunderstorm that we love most as sound folks is um, a dry thunderstorm. So the rain hasn't hit, the wind isn't there, and there's very little birds or insects. Um, so inherently you go to Colorado. It's just notorious for its storms. Um, so this, was, this recording was taken in Colorado, near Jefferson, Colorado. Um, and there was a beautiful storm happening and forming over the presidential range of the Rockies. Um, and I was on like some nice knolls with some young aspen groves and a few taller pines. Um, and yeah, it was just a beautiful, it was like the perfect setup. You know, I was like, had a clear view of the storm, no noise pollution, um, no rain happening. It was perfectly still. Um, and some distant thunder started, which is perfect. I knew it was coming towards me, but it was very distant. It was very far away. I had no concern for my health or safety whatsoever. Um, so I had my microphone set out. I was leaning against a tree. Um, I, you know, it was like that afternoon, two or three o'clock. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'll like take a few minutes of shut eye before the storm really comes in. Um, and it happened that quickly where this tree that I was sitting underneath um, or standing underneath was struck um, by lightning. And it wasn't more than like a 25 or 30 foot tall conifer. So it wasn't like a big tree that got struck by lightning, but it happened to be the biggest tree, I guess, where I was. Um, and you can hear in that recording that it was one of the scarier moments of my life. There's a lot of cursing involved. Um, there was definitely some like, I just hit the ground because I, I didn't know what had happened. Um, and uh, yeah, so definitely be careful about storms, especially thunderstorms, because they develop and strike in ways that are very difficult to predict. Um, but I remember calling Gordon um, from the nearest bar after that experience because I was like, okay, I just, I'm not a huge drinker, but like, I'm just going to go have a beer even though it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Like it's one of those days. And I called Gordon, I'm like, 
you know, oh my God, I just almost got struck by lightning. I think I may have gotten struck by lightning. I'm not sure. And he's like, did the recording come out okay? (laughs) (laughs) Once he made sure that I was, I was safe and healthy. That was your next question. And then when I listened to the recording and how, you know, how beautifully it starts and then when you step on it, you know, with your cursing and everything else like that, um, I, all I could just see is like this. And then after that, how it just like threads its way through the sky. And it was like, oh, my God, this could have been the best recording ever possible with thunder i like the human side that's the humanity of it like holy shit you know you aren't off the task of recording thunderstorms you know i don't care what kind of pts therapy you got to go through or whatever there's but you gotta also like part of thunderstorm recording now will be tie yourself down duct tape over your mouth the whole thing and then push record right yep uh, totally it's taken me some time to get used to thunder again. Uh, I spent this year recording thunder as well, but um, I'd make sure I like set up my gear and then retreated a bit. Um, but what I love most about the thunder recording, other than I have an audible event of the most scared I've ever been in my life, which is something not many humans have, um, is that before I start screaming obscenities, um, you can hear the lightning hit the tree. You can hear this like, thing. And that's still savable. Like, that is definitely, you can hear, that's the sound of lightning hitting a tree before the big thunder crash. So, um, but yeah, everyone uh, who wants to go record thunderstorms, please, please be careful. Have you, have you made that into a drum sample or anything? <laughs> oh my God, what a great idea. Are you You're copywriting welcome. that idea right now? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great idea. <laughs> Gordon, I want to talk to you about a different kind of recording. A clip you sent me, it's 18 minutes and 17 seconds of water flowing through a pipe. Now, for someone like me, (laughs) I could like really go, wow, this is so cool. But why record sounds like this? Um... Well, while I am known for nature sound recordings that are from pristine wilderness areas, I'm still very much interested in listening to all sounds. Uh, In fact, you know, steam engines, um, um, street musicians, uh, everything, the sonic, there's, there's every place on earth is another sonic environment. And I really enjoy just taking in the moment and I was on the search for actually a thunderstorm at that time at, in eastern Washington when I pulled over to the side of the road just to sort of stretch my legs because a VW bus is pretty uncomfortable and cramped a lot of the times. And um, I heard something that didn't sound like a creek. It sounded something different and then I walked towards the sound and uh, then I realized that somebody had left the cap off of the maintenance access portal to a 
more than eight mile long irrigation pipe. Okay. And so it's like, oh man, I started listening to it and the pipe started talking to me. And I was feeling just every, every kind of, geez, you know, just listening to my feelings and going, yeah, I gotta have this. I totally have to have this. And because the, the diameter of the pipe was large enough, then as Matt knows, when you have to get the sound, you also have to take some risks. So I, not knowing how far down the water was, I'm lowering my very expensive microphone system down into the pipe so that can be its own performance. So it's like, you know, musical performance, instrument, amphitheater, all in one. And then it was like, you know, never enough. It was never enough. Um, while that piece goes on for a long period of time, it, um, believe me, my field recording went on for a lot longer. I think I, it was at least five or six hours until I decided I got to get back on the trail for more oh thunderstorm recording. <laughs> That's so indicative of like what what happens when you have an idea of what you need to go out and get and then what en ends up actually happening. Um, it's all about seizing that opportunity. <laughs> That's right. And, and pretty much when you go out on a project, uh, you have to realize, okay, the project reason I'm out here to record birdsong or I'm out here to record thunderstorm, I'm out here to record surf, um, uh, driftwood logs, uh, whatever, that is just the excuse to get out there. But once you're out there, you you just stay open and, and you listen and you explore the world and discover what is really out there. And that's important to uh, point out the difference between Matt and my work is that, you know, you were describing um, your paint painstaking efforts to record coyotes in winter. And I know there are other people out there that are thinking to themselves, well, why didn't you just license coyote recordings and winter recordings and mix them in the studio and call it good? You never would have had to been cold for a moment. And, and, um, and the answer to that is because it's not the real world, okay? And I think modern culture has been so busy increasing the distance of our disconnection with the real world, which ultimately sustains us. So one of the things about Matt and my work is if you, if you like our work, you actually um, love this beautiful sonic planet that we live on and is definitely worth saving for a whole bunch of reasons, including the live concert. to talk about, Matt, your recording of the oil refinery because it's talking about the real world. To me, this tells the story. You hear birds 
and yet you also hear the hum of the refinery. So it's that juxtaposition of nature sounds and man-made sounds, sort of an edge effect of sound, if you will. Why is that place important to document? Yeah, it's interesting. People all the time just assume that Gordon and I hate listening to the sounds of people or the sounds of humanity. And um, like you said earlier, Gordon, yeah, we specialize in capturing these really pristine natural sounds. But um, some of the most uh, aha moments that I've had have been recording cities. Um, and I did a few years ago this whirlwind tour of like 12 different cities in two and a half months. Um, I'll back up by saying I'm not really a city guy. You know, I like really love being outdoors, not around a lot of people. Because I remember your calls, you know, it was like calling home. And I knew that you were suffering uh, from all the road, the road tour. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was the longest. I mean, I traveled constantly for two years straight um, in a van, but I was going in between like Olympic National Park and Yosemite or, you know, like all these beautiful places I was so lucky to be in. This was the first time that I was going flying from city to city to city, just back to back. And I'd be there, you know, I'd book a flight the day of almost or the day before, fly to XYZ city, be there for a week or two weeks, and then one day wake up and be like, okay, I think I've captured the sonic character of this city, time to move on. Um, So I did that for like two months and had seen by the point this oil refinery recording had come in, it was one of my last stops and it was Houston. Um, so I had been to New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, um, Denver. I had been really all over the place. Um, so this, this, these oil refineries in Houston are really special because um, one, it's where a lot of our uh, crude oil and different petroleum products and plastics are produced. Um, And I had never been in a true industrial area like that before. Um, And when I say true industrial, it's like hard to get scale of driving down a road and for miles is infrastructure for crude oil production. Um, And what's also amazing is that it's in such an ecologically special area. All those wetlands and marshes um, provide really unique habitat for um, for all sorts of living things. So you have this like meeting of um, the human degradation of our planet and what we need to get out of our planet, the oil, the plastics, um, the polymers, everything that we need to like make our cars run and our computers go bleep bloop. Um, and then you have this raw power of nature there in such a real way. Um, it was such like a beautiful meeting of those two things. And I, I'm pretty sure the recording I sent you, I have pictures of, it was dawn and the only light happening was from the fire coming out of all the stacks from the oil refineries. And it was like being in a whole new world. I felt like I was in some weird, not post-apocalyptic, but like weird urban, um, yeah, kind of like being reclaimed um, by nature situation, which I'm not explaining very well, but it was really a powerful um, thing to record all those oil refineries and chemical plants, um, because they had really beautiful songs in some of the same ways I appreciate birdsong, but the implications are a little bit less beautiful. Yeah, well, all those tall stacks with the flames coming out are flutes, right? Yeah. And even in the fossil fuel generation, 
at power plants, we hear the deep roar of these low-frequency flutes that travel over a great distance. The built environment uh, is very much still a part of nature, in my opinion, but it's so confusing often, it's overwhelming to our senses, and often they're just loud, simple sounds that makes it very difficult to access the faint, meaningful sounds. So while in one sense they're less intelligent as sonic environments, they still are sonic environments and there's still lessons to be learned there. Namely, that those stacks that are either like spewing flames on a petroleum refinery or a power plant that's burning coal, those are large flutes and the flutes uh, play notes depending on a lot of physical characteristics about it and it extends over a huge region. In Montana, for example, um, there was one coal mining town of which uh, the activity there spread out more than a thousand square miles. Now, a thousand square miles of not coal mining, but coal mining sound, which is then interfering because it's such low frequency with the uh, sage grouse reproduction on their lek, which they've done for thousands of years, and, and a lot of low frequency communication, which is long distance communication among many animals of the world. So when we assess environmental impact, we often only think of what we can see, but the environmental impact of what we can hear is really, really huge for yeah. sure. That's true. Yeah, and you know, we say all the time that uh, soundscapes are great indicators for the health of an environment. You know, if you have a healthy sounding environment, in most cases, that's a healthy environment. It's intact. Um, when you hear things like oil rigs or, uh, you know, all these chemical plants, you can probably find uh, impacts of those as well. Matt and I are both deeply involved in Quiet Places Preservation at Quiet Parks International. And uh, yet, up until COVID, um, and now, you know, of course, that pandemic has introduced Quiet worldwide back into our neighborhoods where we can listen to the, the faint sounds of our neighborhoods, children's playing, our own footsteps, the rustle of leaves, and to get a whole new neighborhood identity. But when we are asked the question of really why preserve quiet when I, we have climate change, we have endangered species, we have habitat loss, we have uh, super fun sites of toxic cleanups that are going to take generations and billions of dollars if we're lucky to uh, get that under control. And as it turns out that the quiet places when you, when you look and examine and listen to the quiet places, the few remaining quiet places that exist on planet Earth. Those are places that are taking carbon out of the atmosphere, giving us oxygen that we need to breathe, and they're the most biodiverse areas. Uh, and they're also areas that you can go 
the Quiet Park International has established Wilderness Quiet Park and also Urban Quiet Parks, many more on the way. There are places that you can go to not just reconnect with nature, but open up all your senses, because when you save quiet, you save everything else. We're listening to one of the places in the United States with the least noise pollution. This is a recording Gordon made in Olympic National Park in Washington. He'd traveled the country searching for places like this. The track is called One Square Inch of Silence. He wrote a book with the same title documenting his quest for quiet, which he approaches with a reverence usually found in places of worship. The feeling of quiet and the importance of quiet belongs in the heart. And it is the single common denominator, quiet, in all religions and spiritual practices. Even though they originated at separate times in history, separate places all over the world, that quiet literally allows us to experience, and perhaps for the first time for many people alive today, who we are. The, the uh, preservation of quiet has not been easy. Uh, the effort itself um, originates way back in 2005, I guess, with one square inch of silence at, at Olympic National Park, which I had hoped would become the world's first quiet park. And yet, even after 13 years of trying to accomplish that, and in conversations with the FAA, National Park Service, and even our senators, um, air traffic from SeaTac had tripled, and yet 80% of the air traffic flying over Olympic National Park, which was up until then the least noise polluted place in the lower 48, a World Heritage Site and Biosphere Reserve, best example of temperate rainforest we have, in the Northern Hemisphere, 80% of the flights are from Navy growlers flying thousands of sorties that are so high in the sky you can't see them, but they're practicing for military readiness to protect our freedoms at sound pressure levels of up to 75 and even 90 decibels, okay? now. That, that means to hike along the Hope River Trail at certain times, you should be wearing hearing protection. Why is that happening? So I asked the quiet on a day that the Navy wasn't flying. Where do we go from here? And the quiet will answer your questions when you are quiet too. Quiet is quieting. And the quiet told me, and it was kind of comical because I was so serious at the time, and then when the quiet answered, it made me laugh. And the quiet answers in feelings, not a language, of course, is um, why should anybody care about this one corner of the planet when quiet is for everyone? And that was the ha-ha moment 
that one square inch of silence became Quiet Parks International. And within months, we had the first wilderness quiet park down in Ecuador. Nobody was talking to us anymore about why is quiet important. Now the, the conversation switched to how can we be next? Mm. Matt, what is the criteria? Walk me through the steps of how a place gets certified in becoming a quiet park. Um, well, it's, uh, it's complicated and ever-changing. Um, but there's a few things that we know we need to recognize right off the bat, and that is that um, one quiet isn't just a scientific measurement about sound pressure levels. Um, that's part of it. But really, um, one of the criteria that Gordon has developed over the years and um, kind of experts in our field have um, applauded um, is that we want to measure the lack of noise pollution. I think we're not going for necessarily quiet as in silence. Um, we're talking about quiet as a lack of noise pollution. There are lots of places like the Amazon jungle that are not silent. Um, they're loud, they're cacophonous, there's so much happening, but there's not noise pollution. So we recognize that. Um, so that's one of the criteria is a lack of noise pollution. Um, usually what that means in terms of numbers is that you can have a 15 minute period, only 15 minutes, with no noise pollution um, in the hours, the hour leading up to sunrise and two hours after sunrise. Um, if, if any place can be noise free, noise pollution free for just even 15 minutes in that time period, um, we know it's potentially one of the last great quiet places that we have left. Not to interrupt um, you, but that sounds like a pretty low bar, is it? It it is a pretty low bar, unfortunately. Um, but when you've spent as much time listening as Gordon has and what I'm attempting to do now, it's, it becomes very clear that there are so few places left. Um, even when you hike 20 miles back into a wilderness area and um, it's the middle of winter and no, no other humans are around you, um, all you have to do is pull up a, a FAA air traffic map to see how many flights are in the air at any given time. Um, and even if you're in a place with not that much air traffic, if you're near the sea, pull up um, a freight uh, shipping map of all the live freight ships that are happening. Um, and, you know, most of our wilderness areas um, are within a few miles of a road. Um, and just the way that sound travels, it makes it very difficult to experience a place with no noise pollution. Um, because sound travels for miles. You know, I had the experience of recording in um, kind of the high desert in Nevada a few years ago. And it was, I drove 25 miles on like ranching roads to the middle of nowhere for this artist residency. Um, and it was, there was no one there other than cows. It was me and cows the whole time. <laughs> and then when I got back into the studio, I was hearing this low hum and I was like, what could this be? It wasn't an airplane because I had kept an eye on air traffic. Um, there were no highways nearby. We were 20 miles away from the nearest town. Um, what that low hum ended up being was a freight train 20 miles away and down about 2,000 feet in elevation on the other side of a mountain pass. Um, so when you can record a sound that far away, it was just a low hum, barely audible to the human ear, only audible when I amplified it in a professional listening environment. But it just goes to show how far sound travels and how difficult it is to try and protect quiet places. Um, so that was a, a long answer to your question of what the criteria is, but that's one of the criteria. Um, and we're really working on um, keeping this a living document because we're slowly... Um, 
but at the same time pretty quickly developing a definition of quiet. And it will change based on um, the culture, the location, the ecosystem, what you're seeing, what you're smelling. Um, we're working with some like really phenomenal folks who um, are trying to help us answer this question, what is quiet? But bottom line is you know it when you feel it. Um, and when we feel it, we need to work to preserve it. And um, the science might not always catch up with us at the same time. You know, it's important to like hold the spirituality of quiet, the inherent like um, unknowingness of quiet and what we know about it scientifically in this at the same time. Um, neither is more important than the other, um, but one can lead and influence the other. I would like to add, Matt, that um, it's not quiet or noise. You know, the preservation of quiet is not an anti-noise program. What it is really is a freedom of choice. That quiet has basically been a part of human evolution and the evolution of wildlife from the beginning of time. And only recently is it even being considered as a pollutant, okay? It used to be considered that, well, um, if you still, if you wear hearing protection and you don't suffer a hearing loss, well, then everything is all taken care of, even at the workplace. But we now know, with over 5,000 medical research articles, that even low-level noise pollution in the background significantly impacts your um, health and increases uh, rates of cardiovascular disorders. And uh, the World Health Organization has even calculated the millions of life years lost each year because of noise pollution. But also, the other side of the equation is, it's not just about us, right? Wildlife have been using this shared environmental resource, the acoustic environment, in order to detect predation, attract mate, become informed of weather changes. And so when we think of a loud sound for us, well, what is loud for an owl? for example, that's hunting at night, and it needs to hear the very faint scratchings of a rodent underneath the leaves a hundred feet away. Even the passing of a distant jet that hardly registers above the distant creek or waterfall makes hunting and feeding its young, at least for that jet pass, impossible. Well, with air traffic having tripled in the last couple of decades and forecasted to even double again, all right, in the next couple of decades, um, this definitely, uh, there are so many reasons right now. And let's not forget that uh, if you've been fortunate enough to uh, watch David Attenborough's most recent documentary where he comes out with the solution of a third of our planet needs to be rewild. And if we can get a third of our planet wild, then we have, we have this tremendous living solution already. It's been worked out. All, you know, it's just sort of like 
So let's do that. And not only as we rewild it, um, we need to create our wilderness quiet parks, our urban quiet parks, quiet trails, all these categories that we're pursuing right now. And, uh, and we, we have quiet, uh, we have marine quiet sanctuaries, which are really important. Oh, it's, a, it's an exciting field with a groundswell of interest, and there's a lot to look forward to. Yeah, you know, I talked for this podcast, I talked to um, Dr. Chris Clark, who recorded underwater sounds for a lot of years. Oh, nice. Yeah, so we definitely talk about the, the noise pollution in, in the marine environment. It's hugely important. He's a superstar. He's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. Love that guy. Yep. In reclaiming a sense of quiet, what do you hope to accomplish? The mission of Quiet Parks International is to save quiet for the benefit of all life. When we save quiet, we also save everything else. It's really important to understand that, that it's not trivial. Not only do we, you know, lower carbon, increase biodiversity, take care of all those other things that we're trying currently to take care of separately rather than integrated, but the, the saving of quiet is not only going to save the planet, but it's also going to save ourselves because we cannot remain the people we were born to be living in a world where there's no escape from noise pollution, where you don't have the ability to think your own thoughts. Okay. It's basically as simple as that. Um, and then of course people might ask, do you think you can really do that? And, oh, yes, not only can we do it, we are doing it. We established the first Wilderness Quiet Park, a thing that I've been told many, many times uh, it will never happen. Well, it has happened. That's down in Ecuador, Zavala River Wilderness Quiet Park. By the way, it's the homeland of the indigenous Kofan people who invited us down there, and that quiet park will allow them to continue their ancient ways as people of the forest in the Amazon. Beautiful. And then we do have our first urban quiet park outside of a city of millions, Taipei. Within a half an hour, we have a quiet park there. Um, and then I'd say we were probably had more than 10 places on our schedule until the lockdown for COVID in 2020. And now 2021 is going to be like <laughs> a, a lot of road travel and everything. But there is literally no resistance publicly, a lot of support. But there is yet an unidentified resistance behind the line with, I don't know whether to call it industry or politics, because we've come very close to, I mean, we've had red carpet treatment from several national parks, which suddenly unplugged and no conversations were occurring as soon as it became in the press and part of the public. So we, um, it's been a growing experience for us. I mean, after all, what's not to like about quiet? And then all we have to do is think about, well, who are the noisemakers? Well, um, the number one a polluter of our wilderness areas is aviation. 
and aviation does believe in freedom of the skies. And I see how aviation has in the past um, viewed this as being the first bale of bob wire to hit the open range um, because uh, quiet parks basically are no flight zones. You know, flight seeing would end. Okay. But also, you know, let's remember that the very first grant uh, for the preservation of nature sounds was awarded uh, by the, um, the Lindbergh Foundation. Uh, aviation hero Lindbergh, we're headed for the 100th anniversary here in a few years. And that he, when asked, uh, given a choice between planes and birds, he said he'd choose birds. And so the foundation's mission there is to advance technology with a reverence for nature. All right? And that, that is, I think, the spirit of which Quiet Parks International proceeds, is that um, we, I honestly believe that since we know it takes far less than a dollar per ticketed passenger today to avoid flying over a wilderness area, you know, and added fuel costs. Sometimes it even saves fuel because it's shorter to go around. The FAA has different mandates. Um, and that we commonly burn more fuel waiting for the third food cart to arrive for our flight before the door closes. The, the costs of quiet are, are not only small, but in many cases, it's economic development. It's another one, it's another sustainable economy for the indigenous people on this planet. And we need their quiet and their, some, in some cases, willing to share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I think um, talking about like a groundswell uh, around quiet is um, one things that we say, one of the things we say all the time is um, the need to preserve quiet is self-evident when you're in a quiet place. Um, I think we generally encounter a few types of people, but there's really two camps that I find people in when I tell them about this work. The one camp is why would you work to protect quiet? And those are the people who I know need to go spend time in quiet um, to ask themselves that question again, because no one who's been to a quiet place asks you why you need to protect quiet. Um, I've had the really eye-opening experience of not only spending a lot of time in quiet myself, but bringing people to quiet for the first time. Um, And more times than not, I really truly believe it is such a life-altering experience that they'll never be the same way again. Um, So the people who have experienced quiet are automatically right on board and they say, what can we do to help? And that's the beautiful thing about Quiet Parks International is like, as a nonprofit, um, we have hundreds of people who have just sent us an email saying, I'm in Colombia, France, Iceland, Denmark, um, China, uh, Arizona, you know, all over the world. And they just said, I know how important this is. I want to help. Um, no promise of any sort of money, no promise of, of fame or riches, just because we know how important quiet is. Um, and that's the beauty of 
of our organization, but of quiet. It's not because we are who we are. It's because quiet is what it is. Um, it is so important that if you've ever experienced quiet, you know, you know why it's important to save. Um, and if you're listening now and you, you don't understand, um, find a quiet place and then ask yourself that question. Why is quiet important to save? Because I think it really, it does become self-evident for sure. One of the things that I want to do with this podcast is ask my experts, you guys, some tips on how people can become better listeners. So, um, mm. Gordon, let's start with you. This is going to sound kind of funny, but I, <laughs> yeah, because, because if you say you want to become a better listener and just say, okay, now I'm going to sit down and listen, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Your brain is very clever. It's learned all these habits. You have been trained to listen to what is important. And um, you've been trained to block out everything else. So there is this little workaround trick um, so that you can truly listen. And it's just simply hold a microphone and have a recorder, it can even be a smartphone, anything you need, but to listen to your, right where you are, don't go to any place special, listen to right where you are um, with some earbuds in and, okay, notice what you hear. And you hear so much more than you heard before you turned on that device and now put the device down. And you hear so much more. Because the brain goes, aha, okay? That's one thing. Another thing is, is that we're all born listeners, okay? And uh, that means that all of wildlife listens in order to survive. You know, there isn't an animal species that is deaf, period. There are blind species. You have to listen in order to survive because sound is information created by events. That's a rule. So anybody who hasn't gone to school yet, a preschooler, and been taught how to listen, which is nothing more than controlled impairment, um, you just go for a night walk with them, okay? And they'll tell you everything you need to know about becoming a better listener. But then there's also some other tricks. One is... Go to a natural place, all right, and let go of outcome. Just acknowledge you came here for a reason, but now you're going to be here just to be here. Relax yourself. Take some deep breaths because the ear contains some of the smallest muscles and bones in the body and just a little bit of tension will affect how those very faint sounds are able to be detected. And don't listen for a sound because how are you going to listen for something that hasn't happened yet? Okay? Listen to the place. Just listen to the place. When you catch yourself thinking, using words, thoughts, and stuff like that, which of course is going to happen, just remind yourself and ask the question, how do I feel? 
That is the question. Let your ears do the listening. They want to do that. You're wired to do that. Just listen to your feelings that are feeling the place. You sustain that for 20 minutes more. Sometimes I notice that when I get particularly amped up in this modern world, it takes me a week. Sad to say, but it takes me a week. But in that wilderness environment, it's well worth the opportunity. And then you find that everything you were thinking about back at home that has to do with you, your family, this, that, and the other thing, which is all egocentric, disappears. And you find that you are now what you hear. You become the place itself. You disappear. Do you know what it's like to disappear? And what a huge relief that is, that you're just like another star in the sky or a leaf shimmering in the wind, that you're that free and immortal at the same time. There's no stress or threat. And you just exist in that way. And then, you know, you just kind of fill up and eventually you'll be all filled and satisfied and ready to go out into the noisy world again. And by the way, it's not like you get back in that noisy world and you're like, all of a sudden the stress is back. No, you take the quiet with you. Quiet is quieting and you take the quiet with you. And when you do, you'll be better at work. You'll be a better family member. You'll, you're just going to be your better you, right? And it all begins just like a meditation practice or a lot of practices, sports and everything like this. The more often you do it, the better you get, the more benefits that happen. And then pretty soon, you know, I just have to go find a quiet place. Wow, that was yeah. amazing. <laughs> Matt, do you have anything yeah, to I add? I love that. What I, It's funny because I, Gordon and I have done countless interviews together. I hear him talk all the time. We often say some of the same things due to the nature of this work. But that was a new one for me. Do you know what it's like to disappear? Mm -hmm. And that's what listening is like. Um, which I haven't heard you say before, but I really love. And I'm going to add it to my, my repertoire. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's profound, um, for sure. It's yeah, profound. absolutely. Um, and it, it definitely um, touches on why I love doing what I do. Is that like, yeah, listening allows me to disappear, but not in a way that is making me hide things, but in a way that's illuminating things. Um, I've, I've watched you disappear, Matt. <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah, you took all your gear yeah. and disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, being a better listener um, just starts, I think, with the intention. Um, if you have the thought, I want to be a better listener, you're already well on your way to being a better listener. Um, there are things that Gordon described, like different exercises you can do. Um, uh, but like any meditation, it's like the, the practice itself um, – is going to lead you to where you want to go, um, even if you don't feel like it's successful. Um, so yeah, just uh, open yourself up to being a better listener. Um, and that can be done in your home, that can be done outside, that can be done uh, in a national park or a wilderness area. Um, but the intention of becoming a better listener is where you start. And then the next step is to, like Gordon said, make yourself disappear and just bring in everything that's happening around you, which is really beautiful. 
That's terrific. This is becoming my favorite part of the podcast, the tips for people. You guys are amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then there's some practical tips, though. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get down to it because, um, you know, I'm really tired of opening up all the outdoor magazine article, uh, all the outdoor magazine catalogs, and just seeing how it's a bag of noisemakers that you'd be packing out into quiet places in order to be a better listener. Let's start with rain pants, okay? Why do you even want to wear rain pants? Why do you want to, like, why is your message as you walk up the trail going to be, are you trying to be a train or something? Not only that, but let's say it's as you explore. That's suspicious behavior to all the wildlife, which are busy listening, by the way. And so if you do that kind of thing, I'd be very surprised if you see any wildlife at all, unless they're habituated for like poaching snacks from tourists. Okay. And then they'll show up and hope that you pull out some crinky cellophane, and then you'll create that sort of noise. So this is, I think, the smartest thing, the, the best piece of equipment to bring along on the trail when you want to go for a listening walk. I know what it is. What, what is it, Matt? <laughs> I already know what you're going to say. I know how much he loves it. He's getting paid. No, I want you to say it. <laughs> He's going to say, bring an umbrella. You're right, but you missed part of it, a golf-size umbrella. <laughs> and why is that? Yeah, well, first of all, you can dis- the golf-size umbrella is large enough that you can um, hold it up and have a large protected area from any rain. And it, if there's not rain in the forecast, you can also protect yourself from the sun, and so you're in the shade, Okay. Now, when folded up, it makes a really nice hiking staff, okay? You aren't making noise with your pants, your arms, or anything like this, and you're just strumming along nicely up the trail and listening, but now you hear something that you particularly would like to amplify. Open up the umbrella quietly. Don't let it click. Quietly. And then put the parabola behind your head, and it will amplify the sounds and send it to your ear so you know that you get that advantage, okay? But now it turns out to be a large animal, let's say Roosevelt elk, like in the Olympic Valley. And now you tilt your umbrella over and just allow your eyes to go over the rim of it, and it acts as your blind. Okay, and and then you can slowly sit down, put your back up against a tree, add a slight bend to your knee, make your lines, your straight lines begin to break up so you become camouflaged within the environment. And now you can just enjoy over time what happens. And it's really neat when you take a long time to listen, and I hope that you do, because your attention, instead of scanning the horizon, gets just right down next to where you're sitting, and you realize, oh my gosh, 
there's a whole forest of moss and lichens on this log. And one fallen log is as complicated and as diverse as the whole big forest. And so the, the amount, the depth of the experience becomes much bigger. Um, I have, I'm going to say, easily a dozen umbrellas in my collection because I know when I take people and say, bring an umbrella, they don't. And, you know, because they already have rain pants, why should they buy an umbrella or stuff like this? And so I like to pass out umbrellas and uh, show off how, you know, how great they are. You want the green striped one? You want the all color? It's great for calibrating color in photographs and stuff. My favorite one that you have is the red and black one, personally, is the one that I always go for. Because it is, it's so true. Every time we go out, it's like... Every, it's like we can't start walking. It's like, oh, wait, where's your umbrella? Do you have your umbrella? You know? And it's so, it's so true. What you said is so surprisingly true. You can use it for all these different things. So I only laugh because uh, it's like very unexpected, but I knew exactly you were going to say, don't forget your umbrella because I hear that from you all the time. And maybe I'm convinced you like own shares in some sort of golf umbrella company or something. <laughs> okay, Matt, here's a, here's a pop quiz for you. What's uh -oh. the second thing? And it's not my idea. It's what I read uh, in an early book on wildlife sound recording out of England. And this was number one on their list, but it's number two on my list. What do you think it is? I feel really I'm under pressure now. I mean, it, it can't be something as obvious as like your gear. You're never going to forget this. You need to bring along a couple of buns. Oh, so true. Something to put in your stomach because with all the excitement of what's going on during adventure listening and quiet and everything like this, you know, and you forget to eat enough and then you go to this quiet place and you just listen to your stomach growl. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, John Muir did the same thing. He talks about his Muir biscuits that he would bring along. Yeah. That's great advice. So don't forget your umbrella and your biscuits. Umbrella and biscuits. Okay, got it. Wonderful you can forget advice. everything else and it won't be a disaster. But you need those two things. <laughs> Wonderful advice. Love it. Thanks to my guests, Gordon Hempton and Matt Mickelson. It has been an absolute privilege to amplify their work. You can find out more about Quiet Parks International at quietparks.org. There's even a picture of Gordon with a big golf umbrella on his bio page there. If you're interested in Gordon's tracks, his website is soundtracker.com. Matt's projects can be found at sprucetonefilms.com. The soundscapes in this episode were recorded by Gordon and Matt. This podcast is handcrafted. I edit and mix, and I also compose and perform the incidental music. To hear more of the music, if that's your jam, I publish on major streaming platforms as Cosmic Piano. If you want to show your support, I'll also be including music and field recordings from the podcast episodes for purchase on my Bandcamp site. That's at cosmicpiano.bandcamp.com. Until next time, I'm Mary Beth Tool, and you've been listening to Sonic Earth Expeditions. Thank you, and remember, Better living through listening. Happy trails. <laughs>